<laughs> you know I wanted to light this thing, right? You know, I was like, Troy, it's going to be like amazing. And he was like, Tara, I want you to look at me. I want you to listen. I want you to, I want you to really focus right now. You cannot burn that church down while I am gone. And I was like, come on. And he was like, no. I'm like, fine. Okay, dad. Anyway, I really felt like I had to do something Olympic-y, you know? So I was like, well, it was either this or it was the Giselle catwalk. I felt like I could have done that, except I, I felt like that would have ended really badly, and I definitely cannot do those shoes. So, this is an actual Olympic torch. My father-in-law had the honor of running with it in the official 2002 torch relay when the Olympics were held uh, right here in Salt Lake City, right here in Utah. I moved here uh, only about six months after the Olympics were held here, and it was like such a bummer to me that I just missed it. Because like many of you, I am a huge Olympic fanatic. I'm going to hand that off because I promised him I would not break that. Making a lot of... I won't light it. I won't break it. Okay. Uh, I cannot, with the Olympics, get enough of the music... I can't get enough of the medals. I can't get enough of Michael Phelps' headphones. I can't get enough of Michael Phelps' baby's headphones. I can't get enough of Bob Costas. Like if you, many of you remember, a couple of years ago, he had the weird eye thing, and he couldn't do the Olympics, and I was like in a total panic, because nobody else can report to me on the Olympics. In fact, this message barely got written, because I spent so much time this week glued to the TV, watching sports, some of which I don't even understand what's happening. I'm just yelling for weird things. We all have our favorite sports. Could be handball. Oh, I wasn't expecting that, but okay. It could be badminton. It could be the canoe slalom. Or it could be the canoe sprint. Tough to, tough to balance those. I personally feel like Giselle's walk should have its own sport in the future, if you ask me. But my favorite thing to watch, which many of you might agree with me, I hope some of you do, is gymnastics. I know, we have a lot to celebrate this week, guys. We got a little more to go. Okay, uh, I have always had a thing for it. When I was eight years old, my dad made me a balance beam, and I practiced on that thing constantly, making up routines to songs. At my very first concert, which was Laura Branigan, some of you might remember that name, I went to that concert with my parents. I wore my leotard under my clothes because I had a secret plan that I was going to like bust it out, do the whole Superman thing, and jump up on stage and do my floor routine, which I did not do, but I really did do that. I remember that Leo. I remember that Leo. It was so cool. Uh, I took gymnastics forever until I transitioned to cheerleading in high school. Why is that not an Olympic sport? And the canoe sprint is. Anyway, gymnastics is still and always has been my first love. Watching Olympic gymnastics for me begins not with the actual Olympic competition, but with the Olympic trials, when the girls try to compete to make the team. Please understand that when I say I watch gymnastics... I actually watch it standing in the bathroom. I cannot watch it live. I will not watch it live. I read the last page of a book, so I don't have to worry about what it's going to say. I know what the end of a movie is going to be before I watch it. I'm not into real time. It just makes me too nervous. So I stand in the bathroom like a ding-dong and yell out to my family, Did she fall? Did she almost fall? And then I go back in, and I make them rewind it and watch it again. And so I'm just a real, real joy to watch the Olympics with. So, God bless my husband. So, we, uh, we survived the trials, barely, and we had our 2016 Olympic team 
Good to, yeah, I know. <sighs> there are two returning members of the team. First, there's Gabby Douglas, who won team gold and all-around gold in the 2012 Olympics. And then there's Allie Raceman, who was part of the 2012 winning team, and she also competed in the all-around in 2012, too. It's another long story, which I'm not going to tell. But as I watched those two compete in the trials to get back on the team, I had this funny thought. Ladies, you already won. Are you, like, a little bored? It's not like there's a new apparatus. not like they added a third bar to spice things up. It's not like they extended the length of the balance beam. Do you know what it takes to stay in that kind of shape for another four years? So your stomach muscles look, they, they are going to literally break the fabric of the Leo. It's pretty intense. And it's pretty monotonous. They're still practicing their cartwheels. Basic skills which they've done perfectly since they were toddlers again and again and again. They do the same thing repeatedly to build actual muscle and to build muscle memory. Building the instinct they'll need to not crack when they perform under pressure. Gabby and Allie have done their cartwheels and their 1,000 sit-ups every day, most of their days on this earth. They've endured emotional torture and they've endured the physical torture of pulling their hair back in a ponytail I have never seen so tight with 57,000 bobby pins shoved into their scalp. I don't know why all those bobby pins are necessary, but it looks painful. They just keep going, even when they've already won. They practice, they do the work, so when the time comes to compete, they can stick that landing. Today, we are going to meet a little church that has already won in the eyes of Jesus himself. And Jesus writes a letter encouraging them to keep going, to stay strong, as they defend and hold on to the victory that can only be found in him. And before we do that... Let's take a breath and pray. Oh, well, Lord, we just stop for a second. And we remember, God, that um, your word is what we are here to hear today. And I just pray for that. I thank you for the opportunity for all of us, God, to just hear from you in whatever way that looks like to every person here. I pray for that. We thank you, God. We love you. Amen. All right. This message continues our series on the seven churches of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John records a letter to each of the seven churches in the first century. The letters range in content and in intent. Some warn, some scold, and some celebrate. But in each of the letters, Jesus essentially tells them what he thinks of their faith. And we, in the process, get to think about the letter we might get telling us what he thinks about our faith. So we're keeping our eyes and our ears and our hearts open to be convicted or to be instructed or to be corrected or to be encouraged. This week, we're going to skip over the church at Sardinia, which Troy's going to come back to next week, and we are going to focus on the letter Jesus writes to the church of Philadelphia, a unique letter of encouragement to his followers. Some of you are followers of Christ. Some of you aren't. And a special welcome to you. I wasn't either all that long ago. But I do hope today that whether we consider ourselves followers of Jesus or not, we can all be encouraged to take our dedication to our training seriously. 
There's some fun facts, a lot of fun facts about the Church of Philadelphia. I'm not going to share them all. I'm going to share just one, though. The city was established by King Eumenes II. Eumenes had a loyal brother, Attilus, who went by the nickname Philadelphos. And Eumenes loved his brother so much that the city got its name, Philadelphia, and its motto, the city of brotherly love. Also, this was a little church. We know this because in the letter, Jesus says they have little strength. This little has multiple meanings, and one indicates in part that this is literally a small church in terms of quantity, and that they therefore have little power. There's just a few of this faithful bunch. But the unique fingerprint this church leaves on us is that it receives no condemnation, no rebuke, no threat in its letter from the Lord. It's a love letter, offering only reassurance and praise, which leads me to ask, what are they getting right? As we will see, they get a very good score, not only because they figured out how to stick that landing, but because in the face of difficulty, they made a choice to stand firm. So let's start reading it. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. The author describes himself in three distinct ways. First, he's holy, consecrated, sacred. Holy is a word we see throughout Hebrew literature. Isaiah 43, 15 says, I am the Lord your holy one, Israel's creator, your king. Second, the author also defines himself as true. Translated, this Greek word is aletheinos. This word describes something that is fully real, down to the bones of its nature, a through and through genuineness. It can also more accurately be defined as faithful or reliable. This church might have wondered if he was reliable and maybe needed to be reminded that he is. Probably some of you wondering the same thing. Third, the author describes himself as holding something called the key of David. He says, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Remember that the book of Revelation is filled with images and metaphors. And keys in the ancient world, whether they were literal or metaphorical, represent authority. They represent access. There has been a popular jewelry trend you may have seen as of late, and it's called the Giving Keys. This company is a cool story. This company was started by a singer-songwriter named Caitlin Crosby. Caitlin started wearing her New York City hotel key as a necklace, and she had this great idea to start engraving these old necklace, uh, used keys with inspirational words. So one day, she's true story, walking along Hollywood Boulevard, and she sees a homeless couple, and she invites them over for dinner. And she finds out at dinner that night that the woman made jewelry. And so on the spot, she asks them uh, to become her business partners. And the very next day, they start making giving keys. And employing the homeless is still a, a, a huge part of this company. Each key says something, and the point of the keys is to give them away. When I've taken my key off my neck and put it on another's, or had a key put around mine, I know it doesn't open anything, but I suddenly walk tall in what it says. My daughter, funnily enough, brought me uh, my breathe key, which I, I kind of forgot I had a few nights ago, and I think she thought I was almost going to literally pass out because I was watching my girls on the beam. That uh, was helpful. Jesus holds the key of David, and that key opens what no one can shut, 
or shuts what no one can open. What door does this key open? There is scriptural evidence to support that this is the door to the eternal kingdom, or that it refers to the door of effective evangelistic ministry. Either way, this key somehow can open a door to the presence of God. And it's a door Jesus invites the Philadelphians to walk through, as we'll see. Verse 8 starts out by saying, I know your deeds. Jesus says, I know what you've been up to. I think I'd probably be holding my breath. And you have that experience, like your spouse says, hey, can we talk? Or your boss says, do you have time for a little meeting? Or your, your, you know, whoever you're dating says, can we have a little, like, define the relationship? And you're like, mm, I don't know which way this thing's going to go. I hope well, and it does for them. He goes on to say, I know your deeds. And then he says, see? And see means, behold, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. That went really well. He who holds the key, who is holy and true, says, come on in. And that was big to this little tribe of brothers and sisters because of what we're going to learn in verse 9. It says, I will make those of you who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not but are liars... Okay. This church is facing persecution from the Jews in the local, uh, local Jewish synagogue. Now, this text is not intended to promote anti-Semitism. Paul was a Jew. John was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. But here's the deal. The Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire, everyone was required to worship Caesar except for the Jews. Uh, in the early days following Christ's... Uh, oh, the empire struck a deal. This is because the empire struck a deal with the Jews to recognize their desire to worship only their God. So they get an exemption. And then in the early days following Christ's resurrection, many Jews became Jewish Christians. And the Christians were considered a sect of Judaism and were given that same exemption to worship God as they please. But the Jews in Smyrna and in Philadelphia kick the Christians out of the synagogue and they reject them as a sect of Judaism. They complain to the Roman authorities. They're not really Jews. Therefore, they shouldn't get a pass. They should worship Caesar. So the Roman Empire tells the followers of Jesus that they now have to follow the same law as everybody else, which they don't. History also tells us that the Jewish population starts to tell on the Christians to the Romans. And Jesus goes so far as to call it the synagogue of Satan. He uses a transliteration of the Hebrew word Satan, which means accuser or slanderer, or adversary, in this case, adversary of God. Jesus is saying that the Jews in Philadelphia have chosen to literally oppose God's people, hence his strong language. But the Jews think they are God's people, and have told those that have decided to believe in Christ that they're not, and closed the door of the synagogue to them. So the church is being persecuted by both the Jews and the Roman Empire. And that's a lot for just a little people. Have you ever had that feeling? Like you are getting it from all sides? The pressure from people that somehow have this real or imagined power or influence over you, whether you feel that in the professional world, whether you feel that on the playground, and you can't escape it. Well, these Philadelphians are boxed in, struggling against very real enemies. 
And for them, their very lives and the lives of their children are in danger. So now imagine what they hear what com- when they hear what comes next. He's speaking about the first century Jews in Philadelphia, and Jesus says, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. They might have had to turn in their key to the local synagogue, but the door to the temple of eternal life is open. It is not found in the blood of their lineage. It is not in their ethnicity, but through the blood and the sacrifice and the love of Jesus Christ. And through him, the church of Philadelphia is being given access to the saving presence of God. Their pain and their struggle and their suffering will be rewarded. The Lord is up in those stands and he has a sign and it says, way to go. Saw you at practice and way to go. And I hope that some of us today can receive that high five from God. But what's their secret? How do they decide, even at the end of their rope, to tie a knot and to hang on? This church decided to stand firm. Our scripture shows us three ways that they made that choice and that they chose conviction over compromise. First, they say in verse 8, yet you have kept, he says, you've kept my word. And you've not denied my name. And then in verse 10 he says, we're moving forward a little, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. They kept his word. They obeyed. They didn't deny his name. They were loyal. They kept his command in hardship. They endured. First, they kept my word. Translated, this means they guarded it and they kept it from being used wrongly. But more practically, they knew what it was. And they did what it says. Sometimes I think because I know what it is, I can convince myself that that's enough. I know. But knowing it and doing it are two very different things in my daily walk around the block with God. Second, they did not deny his name. They were loyal. They said, I'm with him. If you have been praying for persecuted countries over these last couple of weeks, like Jeremiah asked us to do in his sermon, you've thought about that. What it might take for people right now to not deny Jesus in our country around this world, facing the very present reality of death. And Lord, we pray you would protect them. And third, they endured. But they didn't just endure. They endured patiently. There's an attitude to this enduring. It's not, really? Are we still doing this? Are we going to do this again? Am I going to endure this again? It's not like I act sometimes when my husband comes home from work and says, how was your day? And I'm like, good. I endured the children. You know, and I'm like an embarrassing, weird martyr about it. Truth. Uh... This is a patient perseverance that looks like putting one foot in front of the other every day. Obedience, loyalty, and patient endurance. These are the ways that this church chose to stand firm. And Jesus looks favorably on these behaviors. He approves. He says, In verse uh, 9, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And then he says in verse 10, I will also keep you 
from the hour of trial that is going to come to the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus loves and protects those who stand firm in him. He says in verse 9 that the Jews are going to bow down at the feet of the Christians. In the book of Isaiah, um, Isaiah 60, 14, he says, The sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow at your feet. This verse is from the Old Testament, where it was taught that the Gentiles would pay homage to the Jews. And now this promise is turned on his head. In Revelation 3, the Jews will bow to the Gentiles. The more you get to know Jesus, the more you realize he has this real special knack for turning things upside down. On a personal note, I can speak from experience to say that if you let him turn your life and you're thinking about your life upside down, you will find that things turn right side up. But we have this image of the Philadelphia Jews at their feet, and you'd think it would really scratch that justice bug itch, right? The vindication, the revenge of their persecution. But this verse ends with the words, I have loved you. That's what they see. Some commentators suggest that this submission, it says at your feet, not at my feet, might indicate a conversion of the Jews to know Christ. That they, that, that they see that the Gentiles are loved by the Lord and they want in. This image isn't the Gentiles who know the love of God doing the I told you so wagging finger. It's an invitation to them to experience that love too. That the love of Jesus is not found inside religiosity or what our world or what our flesh thinks is right and wrong. And something else that this image says to me is it's okay if you messed up. I don't care what you did. But at his feet, at the foot of his cross, where sin and guilt and death are wiped clean, no one, nothing, not mistakes, not rejections, can take that love from you. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul asks in verse 35, one of my favorites, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And in verse 38 he says, For I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor the present or the future or any powers or heights or depths or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our suffering... Can't either. If you are in a tough spot, do not assume he is punishing you. Or that you're getting what you deserve. Yeah, there are consequences to our actions. But we can't assume our own logic of God's getting back at me is right. He is not out to get you. He is out to get you. But you're not the only one that wrestles with that in difficulty, or that lives in private pain. If you have lost your job unexpectedly, if you are losing somebody you love slowly, if you are losing your mind trying to honor your mother, if you are losing the feelings you had for someone, or if you are just plain lost, you might want to have a pity party. And I say, go for it. I have a pity party necklace. 
And when I want to have a pity party, I put it on. And that is my sign. Do not come to me and tell me everything's going to be fine and start doing all this. I want to feel bad. I don't want to feel happy right now. Do you see the necklace? But I have to figure out when to take that off. And that is when my bad feelings about me scream louder than God's feelings of love for me. We have to take that thing off and stand up in our suffering because only then can we stand firm. Not because we can figure it all out or because it's all going to work out, but because it's all grace. And he loves us and there is nothing in our space or in our place or in our crazy pants place or pace of life that can keep us from this love. Only thing that's going to get in the way is you, me, and our willingness to know it. And I think the Philadelphians did. I think they were kicked down and they were kicked out, but they knew, they know and know God's love, and it showed, even with their enemies at their feet. God loves and protects those that stand firm in him. Verse 10 says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus protects those he loves. They will suffer on earth, but they will not suffer the wrath of God. They have been given an exemption. They will be spared from something that sounds very bad, the hour of trial that's going to come to all the earth. And this makes the next piece of news, welcoming instead of threatening, he says in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, when you hear this, right, this could be good news, I'm coming soon. This could be bad news. It's bad news if you're not taking them seriously. But for the Church of Philadelphia, it's good news. It's great news. He is coming soon. And he's saying, way to go, church. Now you just got to hold on. Hold on, believers. Hold on, my faithful little people. You're almost there. As a little gymnast say before they go up and they pat each other's, you know, you got this, you got this, girl, you got this. You got this. You can do it. This word hold in Greek is kriteo. It means grab, it means grasp, it means grip. And it's a continual verb. Keep holding. Don't let go, like it all, or something can go very wrong. Hold on tight. We are fortunate, uh, my husband and I, to have a great group of friends at our kids' school. Uh, and the dads get along so well. We all get along well, but the dads, the dads get along great too. And they did what only a, uh, the only real respectable thing uh, that a group of dads with uh, young children can do, and that is that they formed a biker gang. <laughs> Obviously. Right? So uh, Greg recently got a bike of his own, and uh, I was like, oh. And a couple of weekends ago, um, great. So, uh, and a couple of weekends ago, uh, was the first time that I rode on the bike. We have it, oh, we have it up there already. Okay, great, I know. People look so weird in helmets. <laughs> they look so weird. It's like very mega mind. So, um, side note, gotta get back here. Okay, so we're on this bike, and we're thinking like, oh, it's gonna be an hour, and it turns into three. You know, it's one of those experiences where, do you ever have that feeling in Utah, like you look around and think, oh my gosh, this place is so beautiful. Like, is this is a postcard? Oh, 
And you're, anyway, going through East Canyon, and it was just so beautiful. Anyway, we get home, and I go to get off the bike. And I'm like, I can, I'm like kind of stuck. And the thing that I didn't realize was how tight I had been holding on to the thing. You know? And you're, and I, I'm like, Ooh, you know, that feels when you get your hands off and you, and then your nails have kind of like dug into your palm and you're trying to unclench them and like purple and white and like skeletor looking. And you're like, Oh, sometimes I think that's what holding on to our crown has to look like not falling off that bike, keeping a very tight grasp. So we don't fall out of his grip, holding on tight. Nothing is going to pry me off. To further make my point, I I thought I would show a visual um, of what holding on tight looks like. This is Allie Raceman's parents. (laughs) Did you you see this? They're like, right? They aren't going to let go. I mean, I just, anyway, she's my second favorite mom of the team. Um, she's from Massachusetts, so she should be my first favorite mom, but she's my second favorite mom. My, my first favorite mom on the team is, you'll see her right here in this next slide. You don't see her, do you? Do you know why? This is Madison Koshin's dad. Do you know where Madison Koshin's mom is? In the bathroom. That's where she watches. It's a true thing because I stalk them all. She watches in the bathroom because she can't take it. She is my people. I know. I know, it makes me so happy when I learn that. (laughs) Holding on is also humbling, especially after you have let go. There is a gal in our community who bravely shared her story with me recently about holding back on to God. She spent years growing and getting to know the Lord in the church and outside of the church, but things started to unravel. Spiral. Family, relationships, emotional struggles, and it all just got worse and worse, despite her desperate pleas and prayers for relief. And she came to the conclusion God had given up on her. And so she chose to give up on him. Maybe you feel like that's happening to you. So I'll just let her words speak. She says, as my brain started to be rewired... I was able to think without all the emotions and look back and realize that God was giving me signs all along. I just chose to ignore them. I started to realize that I needed to go through everything to bring me to the point where I was so that I could finally, truly deal and come to terms with my problems. God never left me. I just chose to look the other way. I still wonder why he let all this happen to me and why I didn't feel him in those months of my deepest despair. But I believe that I needed to completely, literally fall to my knees to be able to truly give it to God and learn that I can become stronger. I can think more clearly. And I can start to become who he wants me to be by letting go of that pain and going back to him. Holding back on can be humbling. But I encourage you, Whether it hurts or humbles you, do everything you can to hold on to your crown and stand firm. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. 
Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul's words here echo those of Jesus in Jesus' letter. Paul tells us what to be, what to do, and what to know. He asks us to be steadfast and immovable, not wobbly, so we don't fall down when we are pushed, which we are and will continue to be. He says what to do to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. I know the busyness of life rages out of control and seeing words like work and fully and labor make you want to hyperventilate. I totally get that. So permission to breathe. Maybe that's what you can, how you can give yourself fully to God. Take a minute and just breathe. This word fully means abound. It means overflow. So whatever it takes, whatever that work looks like for you, you may not know what it is. You probably know what it's not. But whatever it takes to give God your energy, to figure out getting rid of what's sucking the life out of you and put some back into you, that kind of work is worth it. And that is what Paul wants us to know, that the labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our verse here, uh, it starts with the word therefore, one of the best little tricks I've learned um, in my theology program, which I probably should have been able to figure out myself, but that's okay, is that when I come upon a therefore or some kind of word like that in the Bible, I need to pay close attention to what comes before it. Duh. What are we thereforeing? So, what precedes verse 58? Verse 57. And it says... But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, that is why we stand firm. Jesus' letter to the Church of Philadelphia wraps up with some promises of victory, too. In verse 12, he says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. So they're exempted from trial. They have their crown, and now God promises to make these people pillars that we will become pillars, you and me, built brick by brick on our pain and on his promises. So every time the earth shakes, let's not break. We are his, and he will tattoo us with the name of God, with the name of the city we become citizens of in his kingdom, with all the rights that go along with it, and with the new name of Jesus, whatever that is, that we will bear forever. Holding on to that crown is worth it. Finally, I would like to end today with a confession. Fantastic thing to do with a microphone. And that is this. I didn't like stand firm. It looks pretty, lovely, beautiful. Thank you, Kelly. It looks beautiful, but I didn't like I didn't I didn't love it. Here's the thing. I really wrestled. What did I want in this message? What did I want this one thing? What did I want this takeaway phrase to kind of be? You know, what? come on. I want it to be good. And I had some really good ones. I think. I think. That sounds kind of like, woo, but I thought they were good, you know? The first one that I had was this. Keep on keeping on. What do you think of that? Like I envisioned like a 70s kind of font. Keep on keeping on. It makes the point, right? 
Um, I had keep your eye on the prize. I felt like that was really Olympic themed. I had what you do every day counts on the last day. Like a little rhyming. I'm a big rhyming fan. I know I didn't think that was great either, but that's okay. Clearly it's not there. And then another one that I had that I thought I would share was the victory is won, but there's battle to be done. Carry on, soldier. I totally believe in the victory, and I really believe in the battle, but I was like, that's just, like, really intense. So I'm perseverating, and I love words, and I'm trying to come up with all my words, and I'm like, ooh, let's get some alliteration. And we stop at um, this random pit stop, my husband and I, uh, restaurant, and I said, Greg, I'm, you know, asking him the whole time, and I was like, Greg, I got it. Effort will release its reward. And he went... If you know my husband, he was like this. He was one of the guys singing up here earlier. He goes, yeah. And I was like, first of all, I don't do the yeah. I don't know what it's trying to say to me. I'm annoyed at it. You might not even be trying to say anything bad, but I'm unclear. And then he said, Tara, what are you trying to say? And I said, I'll tell you, I will tell you, Greg, what I am trying to say. Here is what I am trying to say. I am trying to say that this church of Philadelphia got a high five from Jesus. And I want the church at Capitol to learn from this letter and take steps toward getting that high five too. I want to encourage our believers in our community who stand in obedience because they believe he is the way. I want us to not deny his name in the pressures of life because they believe he is the word. I want them to endure patiently because even though things are not going well, because they believe in his will for them and it is good I want the people that do not believe in him to know like know his love I want to remind myself and all of us that we are not handing our resume to Jesus Christ at the end of this day he knows what we are doing and I want to address an issue that sometimes holding on can be boring but please don't think that your relationship with God is some never ending mountaintop honeymoon it takes work I want to say that I don't know why so many orphans are being killed in Syria every day and why my people in Swaziland are starving and I don't know why all of this is happening and it's wrong, but I want to be part of what is right and stand our ground in, with this confusion. I want to say there is a reason Jesus says a million times in that Bible, stand firm, because it wasn't going to be easy. And he knew that, but he says, I will protect you and I will love you and I am going to write my name all over you. It's going to say you are mine. I want to say that even though this journey with Jesus is awesome. Sometimes life really sucks. And our labor, though, is not in vain. I just want to say, stand firm. And then he said, well, why don't you just say that? (laughs) And then he said, maybe not the sucks part. (laughs) And he just said, why do you have to try to be fancy with your words? Just say stand firm. He's a real sum it up kind of guy, and I think he was right. Finally, Revelation 3.13, it says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let us hear and let us listen. I think if we do, it is this. If you're a follower of Jesus, I think what we can hear is a way to go. Is keep on keeping on. 
if you are just trying to figure this like God slash Jesus slash I keep coming to church and I don't know why I don't know why I keep going there, but I keep going and there's something I would say think about these words from Abraham Lincoln. Be sure you put your feet in the right place. Then stand firm. In other words, you can't stand firm unless you know where to put your feet. So what path are you walking down? Give some serious consideration to that and take some steps, even one, to figure it out. Let's pray. Okay, Lord. Oh, God. We just want to be, we want to obey. We want to be loyal. We want to endure. And not just endure, we want to endure well. And we thank you for the victory that you have won for us. And Lord, would you help us in when we're just so dialed into the, all the craziness of this life? God, can we just pan out and get out of the temporary and see the eternity? And know, Lord, that our work, our labor for you, God, is not in vain. We thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen. I have a couple little pieces of homework. Um, one I feel weird about because, um, in full disclosure, I didn't. I haven't read this book. But I feel like a lot of people told me it was really good. Um, and it seemed like it fit. But I feel like I have to be honest about that. Um, the book is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is like a fantastic title by the amazing Eugene Peterson. We've recommended his books in the past. Um, the subtitle is Discipleship in an Instant Society. That sounds cool. With an appealing and practical, it's like an appealing uh, and a practical topic, I feel like, kind of trying to deal with things in an in, in uh, instant society that we are always dealing with. Um, it might, we don't, I just put this on yesterday, so we don't have any in the back, but it might be something you want to consider ordering. Uh, next, I'd like you to listen to a song. <laughs> and it is the Olympic theme song called Rise by Katy Perry. Okay, this is good. I just put a few lyrics up here because. I like to entertain myself. I must stay, okay, I must stay conscious through the madness and the chaos. So I call on my angels. They say, oh, ye of so little faith, don't doubt it, don't doubt it. Victory is in your veins. You know it, you know it. And you will not negotiate. Just fight it, just fight it. And be transformed. Um, and then we have our verse uh, for the week. It's Corinthians uh, fifteen fifty eight. Uh, stand firm. Let nothing uh, move you. Please stand. If you would like prayer, that's wonderful. There are some really amazing people in our church community who are really gifted with that and who would love to share with you whatever it is that you're going through in a confidential uh, way um, to just talk to God about it with you. And we believe in the power of prayer. And, and so I would encourage you to come forward afterwards and, 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 have a, and have a chat with them if you'd like to. But my benediction today um, is may you know that you have a big fan in Jesus Christ, and he is cheering you on. So in the moments of victory and in the moments of defeat, may you stand your ground in God. Thank you for coming.